0: Hello, welcome back, this is Father John Arnold and this is Oro Valley Catholic. And we're in the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Lent is coming up the first Wednesday of March. And this is a good time to start thinking about Lent and and our preparation for Easter. The first reading on the first Sunday is from the prophet Jeremiah. And it's from the first chapter where Jeremiah knows that he's been called by God from his womb. God had a plan for him. And Jeremiah is the great prophet of the destruction of the temple. He told people the truth, that because of their sins, they were going to be destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. But they would be rescued by God, because he was also the prophet of hope. Jesus is the new Jeremiah in the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because he preaches the Gospel of Hope, and Jesus also talks about the destruction of the temple and like it came true for Jeremiah's prophecy, it'll come true for Jesus's prophecy. And so what are we to make of all of this? This week in Oral Valley Catholic, we're gonna talk about Jesus's first homily in Nazareth and how it bombed, but how Jesus's love is what sets up St. Peter's um, great homily in Acts chapter two, and then how you and I can participate in that love with the great example of St. Therese of the little flower. So stay tuned, this will be a great episode of Oro Valley Catholic, because we're talking about St. Therese. And so Jesus, the new Jeremiah. Remember, as the New Testament's being written, the Old Testament is the backdrop for understanding who Jesus is. One of the ways of understanding is Jesus explained through typology from the Old Testament. And so the prophet Jeremiah is a type of a faithful servant of God. And so Jeremiah is opposed by the people of Israel prior to the Babylonian exile and thrown in a cistern, ultimately dragged off into Egypt, but he's clearly doing God's work. Why? Because Jeremiah dared to prophesy the destruction of the temple, just like Jesus will prophesy the destruction of the temple. And in both cases, Jeremiah and Jesus, the prophecy was fulfilled by the Lord. And so, Jesus, the new Jeremiah. How is this present in the story that's in the gospel today? And so if you remember last week in the gospel, Jesus in chapter four of Luke returns to his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches from the prophet Isaiah, the second reading in the synagogue worship service and says at the end, after he talks about freeing the prisoners, um, this Jubilee year, which uh, is the acceptable year, the year that's favorable from the Lord, which is the year when all debts are forgiven, which this is Jesus's ministry. But just like in preaching in the church, at first, before Jesus preaches forgiveness of debts, you got to believe you're a debtor. This is the problem in the synagogue in Nazareth. They do not see themselves as a debtor, that somebody that is not ready before God. And so here's the second part from Luke chapter 4. Jesus began speaking in the synagogue, saying, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing, the Jubilee year. And all spoke highly of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They also asked, Isn't this the son of Joseph? And so, is this truly a prophet? So he said to them, Surely you will quote me the proverb, Physician, cure yourself, and say, Do here in your native place the things that we heard were done in Capernaum. Let's pause. Remember what St. Paul says about the Jewish people. The Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom. All I preach is Christ crucified. And so Luke and Paul, they're joined at the hip. And so be thinking about Paul's as as his homily on Luke chapter four as we go on. Surely you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. If you turn to chapter 23, of the gospel of Luke, Jesus is on the cross suffering. And to you remember what they say to him there? Here it's the the, the the local synagogue leaders at the foot of the cross it's the chief priests and the scribes, the temple leaders. If you are the King of the Jews, come down from the cross, save yourself. So do you see the connection between Luke four and and uh, the people at the cross not recognizing their own sinfulness asking for a sign from Jesus and so let's go on with this reading this is why this homily bombs so bad in Nazareth do here in your native place the things that we heard were done in Capernaum and he said amen I say to you No prophet is accepted in his own native place. Indeed, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was closed for three and a half years and a severe famine spread over the entire land. It was to none of these that Elijah was sent, but only to a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon. So that's in 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe the story is. And you remember the story, Elijah goes into what we think of as modern day Lebanon, Gentiles. There's this widow, just her and her son. This is the type of the of Israel in deep need. And he says, give me something to eat. And she says, I only have this little jug of oil and this little bit of flour. After we eat it, uh, we eat it, my. My son and I are going to die. Jer- Elijah says, trust me. So she makes him a little loaf and he eats it. And the oil, we're told in First in Kings, never runs dry. The flour never stops filling up. And so Elijah performs this miracle, like the miracle of the loaves and the fishes that Jesus will perform. He feeds people in a desolate place, but it doesn't stop there. If you read through the end of the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, son dies, he has no breath. Elijah the prophet lays himself on the boy's body and the boy comes back to life. He's revivified, not resurrected. Resurrected is about a world to come. Revivified is like your body just coming back to life. And so it is this prophetic sign of the resurrection. But then what Jesus says is, um, it was for a Gentile, not for you, um, because you were just so sinful. And so then the second part. So again, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, that's Second Kings. Yet not one of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian who not only was a Gentile, a Syrian, but the enemy of Israel. And if you remember the story, you woke up one day and it turns out he's a leper. One of the young ladies he had stolen from some poor family in Israel tells him, if you go to Israel, we have people there called prophets and they can cure you. So he goes, the king sends him to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha tells him, to go and dip himself seven times in the River Jordan. Naaman uh, fights about that, but ultimately he does it. He dips himself seven times into uh, River Jordan because he trusts God's prophet, and he is cured, uh, cleansed of leprosy. And so, if in the first reading, there is something about the resurrection, in the second reading, there's something about the typology of baptism in this first homily that Jesus preaches. And then where does it go bad? It's because he told the people the truth, which is, of course, what we all want from our preachers, but that doesn't mean it's going to go well, right? And so they rose up in fury, and were going to throw him over the hill on which Nazareth is, is built. When I did my trip to the Holy Land, we were traveling up to Nazareth, and it is on this really steep hill, and they were going to throw Jesus off of. And so... Think about this, because this is an interesting point. Remember, Luke and Paul are joined at the hip. Luke and Acts of the Apostles, the Gospel of Luke, Acts of the Apostles are like volume one and volume two of the story of Jesus and the church. And so this is a great thing. This is Jesus's first homily. What happens to the prophet? The prophet is attacked by the people we would say in modern terms, that that homily bombed. But why did it bomb? If you turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 41, it's St. Peter's first homily after Pentecost. And what happens? He talks about Jesus crucified, risen from the dead. This whole story of what the Messiah has done. And people say, what are we supposed to do? And St. Peter says, you and your whole household be baptized, mom, dad, kids, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, slaves, visitors, everybody in your house. And then it says in verse 41 of chapter 2 of Acts of the Apostles, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 persons were added that day. Now that is a home run my first homily at saint peter and paul in june 1998 when i was ordained was anywhere that successful but no one threw me over a cliff either so here's what i want you to think about because luke is making a picture about what god's love is agape loving for the good of another where jesus bombs his disciples succeed. That's why he says in John chapter 14, you'll do greater works than this. Why? Because Jesus' love is what makes the church what the church is. And so let's turn remember to St. Paul whose hand in glove with St. Luke and the great 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which you may have had at your wedding, which is about love. And we're going to talk about the nature of love in the first century, and then we're going to talk about First Corinthians. This is a wonderful, wonderful part of the readings from this, the fourth, Sunday, in ordinary time. So what happened between Jesus' homily in Nazareth? that bombed, and St. Peter's homily in Acts of the Apostles in Jerusalem, where he just knocks it over the fence. It's the power of love, specifically God's love. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. You probably had it in your wedding. I'm going to suggest some ways to think about it. But at the heart of it is this power of love. In the Greeks, the, amongst the Greeks, there were four ways of talking about love. Storge, eros, philia, and agape. And you may have read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, which is excellent on this. But it uh, he's not the only one that's seen this. And so to understand what St. Paul is talking about, you need to know that there are different gears in love, in your capacity for love. So storge is like the love of affection and you can have affection for people you like them basically and that is something that is uh, a step removed from eros which is we know erotic love it's the love of sexual desire um and that it uh, on its own it can be very frustrating it's why sexual love alone can be so inadequate but Eros has a place it can go. And this is Plato in the Symposium. Eros can lead you to friendship. And friendship is this love, the philia, which is this shared love about something you and your friend love in co- common. It could be um, your wife or your, your husband. And then what you love in common is your family, uh, your extended family, your friends, your uh your combined project in, in building your lives. But agape is a step up. Agape is how God loves. Agape is a selfless love directed towards the good of another. It doesn't diminish the power of storge, affection, eros, desire, or philia, friendship. But it can take all love and lift it up to something different divine and so when saint paul is reading from first corinthians the word that is used in um, first corinthians chapter 13 consistently is agape interestingly it's the same word that jesus uses in the final chapter of the gospel of john when he asked saint peter do you love me peter do you agape me do you agape me in the third interchange Um, St. Peter keeps responding, I feel you, I'm your friend. feel you, I'm your friend. And then in that third exchange, Jesus says, do you feel me? Are you my friend? And Peter says, I am your friend. And that is that God takes us where we're at. And then God can move us. This is the spiritual life. It's why you're a Christian, why you're a Catholic. And so, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 brothers and sisters strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts but i shall show you a still more excellent way if i speak in human and angelic tongues but do not have love i'm a resounding gong or a clashing symbol and if i have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge if i have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love i am nothing If I give everything I own and if I hand my body over so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It's not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interest. It's not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. There are prophecies that will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I think every time I read that at a wedding, I like to turn to husband and wife and say, do you really want to do this? because that is the highest standard. Think about this as loving like Jesus. And so read this like this in your prayerful meditation. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous. He's not pompous. He's not inflated. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not seek his own interest. Jesus is not quick tempered. Jesus doesn't brood over injury jesus does not rejoice over wrongdoing but jesus rejoices with the truth jesus bears all things jesus believes all things jesus hopes all things jesus endures all things jesus never fails because jesus is love and so consider that as we turn to consideration of one of my favorite saints saint Therese of lazio why because it's this 1 corinthians chapter 13 which was this powerful of experience of her own conversion and as lent approaches and you're thinking about a deeper conversion to christ why don't you this lent just make chapter 13 of first corinthians your study read it and then do what saint therese does let's turn and talk about her story consider how saint therese uh, entered into the story of jesus this great story of the church and how she took her place there Um, this is all against the backdrop of this gospel where jesus the new jeremiah offers this great sacrifice of love to enable saint peter to preach this tremendous homily on his first effort in acts chapter 2. well jesus gift of love continues because saint therese is very much the product of Jesus's love um, because she gives herself to it. So some brief background, if you don't know anything about St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, your new favorite saint. Uh, born in 1873 and then her mom died about four years later. And she was kind of the baby of the family. And she always oriented towards her older sisters as, as her moms, then one left to join Carmel become a Carmelite then the other left and this sense of abandonment that she suffered um, reflected itself when she was about 10 years old in this illness uh, where she just took to bed for no apparent reason. But she said that at some point she had this vision of this statue of Our Blessed Lady in her room that she looked at the statue and she saw it smile at her and she felt loved by her mother, uh, Our Blessed Lady. So she recovered, but by the time she was about 12 or 13, she would made her first communion. Uh, I've actually been to the place where she made her first confession. Um, and it was there that she just struggled with scruples. Scruples is what you and I would think of as obsessive compulsive disorder. We just can't get over the imperfections in us, when we pick at them and pick at them and pick at them, it can manifest itself in in all sorts of behavior that just makes us miserable. But it was her faith that helped her just to accept that Jesus found her found her acceptable, and so in one of her first great conversions, she and her sister decided in 1887 that they were going to pray for this vicious murderer named Pranzini who had killed his mistress and her daughter with a knife and was facing the guillotine and refused priests, refused uh, any comfort or consolation from the faith. and She and her sister just prayed and one day she read the paper that said that Pranzini as he went to the guillotine was offered a cross and he kissed it. And so she took that as her victory. and. That was one of the things that said, oh, so this is how you see God answering prayers, you know. Um, you have to be open to how God loves you, not how you want to be loved by God. So she was pretty pumped by this. And she went on a pilgrimage to Rome where she was able to see Leo XIII, who was the longest reigning pope in history until St. John Paul II, and there she asked to enter Carmel, but Leo the Thirteenth says, you know, what's gonna be, what's gonna be, uh, do what your local bishop tells you to do. But this is St. Therese of Lisieux. So the following year in 1888, she enters Carmel, where she gets to join the family, her two older sisters. And then um, four years later, she's there, she's professed, she's 19 years old, and she sees her dad for the last time and her dad kind of slips into dementia. He uh, basically was just out of it and had to go into a home where uh, he was cared for. We think of it as memory care now. But that was just so hard on the sisters because they couldn't be there with the dad they loved. That is hard. It's hard to be there with them for heaven's sake. But he ended up dying, Mr. Martin. Then in nine, 1895, um, she offered herself as a holocaust, uh, sacrificial victim that she would give her whole life to jesus um and it was about this time that she read first corinthians chapter 13 which i'm going to turn to in a minute and then a year after she offered to jesus this holocaust victim which if you're thinking like i think you think holy moly what if he hears me and actually takes me up on it and so it was the following year 1896 the evening of holy thursday after mass she went to her cell and she coughed up this big wad of blood because uh, the tuberculosis that would take her life uh, very shortly uh, about a year um, was already present in her body but being this being trezla zoo she doesn't wake anybody up or bothers anybody she just goes to bed and tells everybody about it in the morning um And so then her older sister is now the abbess or the prioress of the Carmel, which I have been to, and I have offered mass with my sister Rose and Father Pat Carino, which was just a wonderful pilgrimage in the footsteps of the French saints. Um, But in Le we offered mass, uh, the place where her funeral mass would would later be celebrated. But she's ordered there in the infirmary, which is still a cloister, so you can't go back there. and she writes Parts A and Part B of her memoirs. Part A is like the first 14 or so chapters of Journey of the Soul and Part B is the final chapters. The first part is about her childhood. The second part is um, more explicitly about her conversion and what she would like to call her little way. But Parts A and Part B are all about the story of of, uh, how she became small, how she learned to live love uh, and she's really very funny and uh, very honest about herself. Um, so in 1897, the year my grandma and grandpa were born, she dies. Uh, she's Her book becomes like the bestseller in the earliest part of the 20th century. And so um, in ni- 1925, after the First World War, she's proclaimed a saint, And actually her youngest sister, Celine, who's her great friend, uh, doesn't die uh, until uh, 1959 when I was three years old. So she is very much our contemporary. But she writes in part B about what it was that lit her up, how she found who Therese was supposed to be. And so this is from her book, The Story of a Soul, which I urge everybody to read, be great Lent in reading. Um, and maybe it'll speak to you like it spoke to me, unless that's too scary for you, because I left the practice of law and became a priest. So, anyway, there you go. Uh, Everybody takes their chances, but here's what the great St. Therese wrote. This is about her uh, offering herself as a holocaust victim. These aspirations becoming a true martyrdom, I opened, one day, the epistles of St. Paul to seek relief in my sufferings, how she's going to be a Holocaust victim. My eyes fell on the 12th and 13th chapters of the first epistle to the Corinthians. That's our reading today. I read that all cannot become apostles, prophets, and doctors. That's chapter 12. That the church is composed of different members. That the eye cannot also be the hand. And the answer was clear, but it did not fulfill my desires or give to me the peace I sought. Uh, ten, then, descending into the depths of my nothingness, I was so lifted up that I reached my aim. This is where she wants Jesus not to give her a ladder to heaven, but an elevator, which was a new invention at the time. So here's what she says. The apostle then explains how all perfect gifts are nothing without love, The char- that charity is the most excellent way of going surely to God. At last I have found rest. Meditating on the mystical body of Holy Church, I could not recognize myself among any of its members as described by St. Paul. Or was it not rather that I wished to recognize myself in all? Charity provided me with the key to my vocation. I understood that since the church is a body composed of different members, the noblest and most important of all the organs would not be wanting. I knew that the church has a heart that this heart burns with love and that it is love alone which gives life to its members. I knew that if this love were extinguished, the apostles would no longer preach the gospel and the martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. I understood that love embraces all vocations, that it is all things, and that it reaches out through all the ages and to the uttermost limits of the earth because it is eternal. Then beside myself with joy I cried out, O Jesus, my love, at last I have found my vocation. My vocation is love. Yes, I have found my place in the bosom of the church. In this place, O my God, thou hast thyself given to me. In the heart of the church, my mother, I will be love. Thus I shall be all things. Thus will my dream be realized. Now, that's a conversion. And her little way is for those people who recognize with so much of life, you're just in the background, but that nothing works without love. And we're back to Agape. And so here's an idea for uh, Lent. Know that love is patient, it's kind, it's humble. It rejoices in the truth. It's courageous, It's, uh, it's chaste, it hopes for the best and it endures all things on the other hand love is not jealous it's not pompous or inflated or rude it's not self-centered it's not quick-tempered it doesn't brood over wrongdoing it doesn't rejoice in bad things happening to other people so think about this in your conversion this lent make this your examination of conscience let's see how arnold does john is patient john is kind sometimes John's not jealous. Yeah, I have pretty high self-esteem. John's not pompous. Okay, we'll pass on that one. John's not inflated. Pass. John's not rude. Occasionally, John does not seek its own interests, his own interests. That's a tough one. John's not quick-tempered. Uh, depends. John doesn't brood over injury. Depends. You know, if I wake up in the middle of the night, John does not rejoice over wrong doing, but rejoices with the truth. I do want good things to happen to other people. John bears all things, not generally happy, believes all things, not generally joyous about it. John hopes all things. I do. John endures all things. Well, I'm still slugging it out, friends. What a great examination of conscience. You want to be a saint? Listen to St. Therese. This is Oro Valley Catholic, and this has been Father John Arnold.